of all the so-called gods of world religions, only about the God of Christianity can it be said that he's both a savior, but also a friend. And I hope that you get to know him because he wants to be not merely a God who's worshipped from a distance, but he's a God who has come near to us. That's why he sent Jesus to take on human flesh, to be like us, to be among us, uh, so that he would actually be our friend, a savior and a friend. I told our children last night that the message this morning is about sober thinking. And they asked, what is sober? Is it sad? It's like, no, it's not sad. What is it? They said. I said, well, you have to wait until tomorrow. And pay attention to the sermon. And then we can talk afterwards and see if you understand what sober thinking is. But did you know that actually the Bible encourages Christians to have sober thinking. When we think about sobriety, we typically think of it in relationship to substances. Not to misuse them to such a degree that imperils our ability to function, to think properly, to act properly, to speak properly. The Bible speaks about the need for Christians to exercise sober thinking. I encourage you to invite you to open God's Word to Romans chapter 12. We'll be reading from verse 3 to verse 8. Romans chapter 12. You may find this passage on page number 948 in the Pew Bibles. And as you open there, I want to remind you that if you're visiting with us, we are so glad you're part of our service this morning. We are working through the book of Romans. Last week, we were in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and today we continue in chapter 12, verse 3 through 8. As we consider, what does it mean to live transformed lives through the power of the gospel? What does it mean for Christians to live out the transformation that God enables in our hearts through His Spirit that He puts in our lives? What does that look like? Well, we hear today an application of what it means to live transformed lives. Here's God's word, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes 
in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in praying and asking God to bless the preaching of the word in our hearts as we hear it? Let's pray. Gracious God, who among the gods is like you? There's no one like you. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you have revealed your grace to us. And through your grace, you transform us and you desire for our thinking to be transformed. Father, we pray that you would help me proclaim this word in, according, in accordance with your purposes. We ask that by your presence, by your spirit, that dwells among us, even in this gathering, that you would speak to our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. My appeal to you this morning, and the primary aim of this text, is very simple. It can be summarized in this way. Think soberly of yourself. Think soberly of yourself. In this message, we will see the call for sober thinking, the reason for sober thinking, and some applications for sober thinking. Think soberly of yourself. We see that Paul make an appeal in verse 3, a call to sober thinking. And he introduces this call by telling us what not to do. He, he identifies the temptation that each of us have naturally to think higher of ourselves than we ought. So Paul says in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In this verse, four times, Paul brings up the language of thinking. And the fourth time he brings it up, the English translation in our Bible versions has the phrase sober judgment. The phrase sober judgment is one word in the Greek language, and it's a word very close to the thinking verb. But with this particular nuance, that the thinking must be done with sobriety or with prudence. The phrase with sober judgment means to be able to think in a sound manner, to be prudent in our thinking, with focus on self-control, to be reasonable, to be sensible, or serious in how you think, and all of this is applied to how you think about yourself. The contrast to sober thinking that Paul brings up is to think more highly of yourself, to be filled with a sense of self-importance, and to expect others to think of yourself with the same sense of self-importance. Uh, to be 
careless in how we think of ourselves, to be superficial or exaggerated in how we think of ourselves. This call for sober thinking has more force when we remember what Paul said in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Remember last week, if you're with us, you may remember this, if, if this is your first time with us in, in our service, uh, just to remind you what Paul said last week in, in the previous context in verse 2, Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now again, if, if you're not with us, I want to make sure that you understand that none of this transformation happens uh, because somehow we uh, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and bring about this transformation in our hearts. Uh, so far in the book of Romans, Paul has been telling us that God actually transforms us through the, the grace that he gives us in Jesus Christ. It's only because of Christ that we can have any hope of transformation inside us, of a renewed life, of a new life. But as we experience the grace of God, God begins to work in us to bring new life in us, and he transforms us, and he begins transforming our thinking so now in chapter 12, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Nonconformity to this world shows up as we pursue this lifelong transformation of our lives through a renewed thinking, a thinking that happens now according to God's word. And the first practical application of the renewing of our minds is how we think of ourselves. The first application of the renewal of the mind is how we think of ourselves. Do you see how verse 3 starts? By the grace of, that's given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Friends, each of us have a tendency to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And the problem is that we don't detect that tendency in ourselves. It's, it's like a perpetual blind spot. But have you noticed that while we cannot detect that tendency in ourselves, we easily detect it in others? We easily notice when others have a higher view of themselves than they ought. And we are quickly bothered by that, don't we? Friends, the renewal of the mind that the gospel brings us is a, first and foremost, a renewal of how we think of ourselves. Friends, this happens even as we consider the good news of the gospel that we have already heard several times mentioned in the service. In the testimonies, both Tiffany and Gina mentioned clearly this news of the gospel. But I want to remind us of how the gospel challenges us to renew our thinking about ourselves. In the gospel, we are actually challenged to consider that we are, we're not just creatures that have happened to be created by mistake. That somehow human beings on this earth just began to be populating the earth by some 
accident of science. Oh, friends, the Bible tells us that we actually have been made in the image of God. That we've, we've been created by a creator who put intelligence in us, who put in us the ability to discern beauty, who put in us the ability to reason. All of this, we have been made, created by a wise, intelligent, beautiful, perfect creator. But the Bible also tells us that we have actually rebelled against him. We have turned our backs against him. We have ignored him. We have done exactly the opposite of what he tells us to do and be. And therefore, we have become sinners, rebellious sinners. The Bible also tells us that as sinners, we deserve God's judgment. So the Bible tells us that those who are sinners are by nature children of wrath. But God, in his mercy and grace, would pursue those who have rebelled against him, to bring them back to himself, to reconcile them to him. And this happened through Jesus Christ. So that all those who would repent or turn away from their rebellion and trust in the sacrifice would actually be renewed, would be reconciled, brought into God's family. So that now sinners are no longer at enmity with God, but are reconciled with our Creator, our Maker. And we are one with Christ and one with all those who repent and trust in Jesus. Oh, friends, the gospel challenges us to consider how we view ourselves. Oh, friends, I wonder if you have considered your identity to be primarily not so much what you make yourself to be, but what you have been created to be. You have been created to be a reflection of the image of our maker. And God, in his goodness, is restoring rebellious sinners so that that reflection of our maker can be restored in us. Oh, friends, this is unmerited grace. And we no longer see ourselves as mere self-made individuals who create our own destinies, who create our own identities, but as part of the people whom God has created and has rescued to represent Him, to reflect Him. Yet even after people of God experience God's grace of salvation, we're not freed from the tendency to think higher of ourselves. As a matter of fact, even when it comes to our salvation experience, sometimes Christians use that to boast and think higher of themselves than they ought. How do we know that? Because that's exactly what was going on in the church of Rome. In the historical context of, of the church in Rome, Paul was dealing with a tension between saved Gentiles, or non-Jewish people, who put their faith in Jesus, and Jewish people who put their faith in Jesus. These were now bickering against one another and thinking about the salvation of God towards these separate groups as a reason to think of themselves higher than they ought. So Paul said in chapter 11, verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And, God unfold, and Paul unfolds for them the mystery that God has uh, towards ethnic Israelites. 
the call not to think more highly of ourselves hit the Christians in Rome close to home because they were actually throwing grenades against each other. And if not in words, at least in thoughts as they were thinking about the others. Each of them had a tendency to think of themselves as better, as higher, and for opposite reasons. So even though the Christians in Rome were saved by God's grace, here they are thinking of themselves as higher. And Paul wants to tell us to learn from this experience, and he's challenging us as well, even those of us who are Christians. The perpetual blind spot to see ourselves higher than we ought remains with us. Our renewed thinking manifests in how we resist the instinct to think of ourselves higher than we ought. My friends, I wonder if you fight this instinct in your life. How would you know that you fight this instinct? We may not have the same tensions as the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome, but we have other ways we're tempted to think higher of ourselves. Perhaps because of your education. Perhaps because of your upbringing. Perhaps because of how much knowledge you think you have or how much life experience you think you have. But Deep down inside, each of us have a little image of ourselves created in our own making that we deserve a higher recognition. And when others don't give us that recognition, uh, we are hurt, we're bothered, we become frustrated. Now, let me make this qualification. Having a higher view of ourselves manifests not only through self-boasting, but also through self-loathing. Pride manifests itself in us through self-pitying. When pride does not get the affirmation it thinks it deserves. Self-loathing is a manifestation of an overbloated self-image that is not recognized by others or even by oneself. Battling self-loathing is just as much a sign of pride as boasting is. But in the case of self-loathing, it's a sign of an unaffirmed pride. Let me quote to you the words of John Piper. Uh, I found his distinction very helpful here. He said, boasting is a voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is a voice of pride in the heart of the weak. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be needy. But the need arises from a wounded ego. And the desire the self-pitying feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness it is the response of unapplauded pride. People don't notice me. I do all these things and they don't notice. They don't appreciate what I do. People don't pay attention to me. That's a heart of a cry, of a hurt pride. And friends, I wonder 
how often you think and are aware of your instinct uh, of viewing yourself, thinking of yourself higher than you ought. And do you fight it? Now, what helps us have a sober thinking of ourselves? Uh, Did you notice the measure that Paul brings up in verse 3? He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. And then there's an important phrase, clue, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, our faith should be our ally in helping us not to have an exaggerated view of ourselves. But in Rome, it's actually the the, the Christians who are having faith, that were using their faith to think more highly than they ought. So what about their faith was useful for them to actually think soberly? Did you notice what Paul says in verse 3? Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now what is this measure of faith that God has assigned? Bible scholars debate whether this phrase means the standard of Christian faith, which is similar to all, or if it refers to the quantity of faith that God is giving. Now, I'm personally persuaded that it's the latter. So the measure of faith is a faith that Christians have in God. But the surprising element here is that this faith that we're called to have in God is a measure of faith from God given to us. Even the faith that God wants us to have in Him is a faith that comes from Him that He assigns to us. So the notion that somehow even our faith is a reason that we can use to boast against others, to compare ourselves with others, Even that, Paul says, you're missing the fact that it comes from God. Paul says elsewhere in one of his other letters in 1 Corinthians, he says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The Christians in Rome should have not boasted on account of their faith. They should have been humbled on account of their faith. So friends, what do, you, what do you think this looks like for you to let your faith help you fight off human pride, thinking of yourself higher than you ought to think? Let me just encourage husbands to ask your wives to give you some feedback. What they think of your instinct to think higher of yourself. Now, do it after you're done with lunch. Don't do it before lunch. Wives, do the same with your husbands. Ask them to give you feedback. Do they see in you a tendency to think of yourself higher? Those of you who are single, look at a a trusted spiritual friend and just ask them, hey, where and how do you see in me tendencies to have a higher view of myself than I ought? The first point Paul encourages us in this text is this call, this plea to sober thinking. Because all of us, even Christians, even those who've been Christians for a long time, 
we fall trap in this tendency to have a higher thinking of ourselves. But why? What's the reason for this sober thinking? Look at verse 4. 4 and 5, Paul says in verse 4 and 5, For as in one body we have many members, and as the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The reason why Paul calls us to have a sober thinking about ourselves and not to think more highly is because we actually are no longer allowed to think of ourselves in isolation. As Christians, we are no longer allowed to think of ourselves in isolation. Paul brings up the image of the body with its many members to tell us that those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, are actually one body with those who are in Christ, with others who are also in Christ. Those who repent and trust in Jesus for their salvation are not merely saved individually, they are actually saved into Christ and they are united to Christ and they are thus united with all those who are also in Christ. This is one of the meanings of salvation. We are united to Christ. But the other side of that unity with Christ is that we are also one body united with all those who are also united to Christ. Verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. Those of you who are Christians in this room, you are one body with all other Christians who are in Christ. That's a very different way of thinking about yourself, isn't it? And that's a very different way of thinking about yourself in the way that American society wants you to think of yourself. Conformity to the image of this world and conformity to the image of our society is to think of yourself primarily as an autonomous human being. I can do whatever I want. I'm an American. I hear occasionally people think and say things like this. I remember one time, this was many years ago, we were doing a membership seminar, and one of the participants in the seminar was kind but firm and had some different thoughts to tell us and simply said, Pastor, what I do, my sin, is none of your business. Thank you very much for telling me how your thinking is conformed to the image of this world. Because that's exactly what we would expect from an American. That's what our society teaches us. But for those who are in Christ, for those who are saved, verse 5 says, so we though we are many, 
are one body in Christ and members of one another. So I ask you to consider, when you hear people think like that, whether they verbalize it or they just think it, which image are they conformed to in such situations? Is it the image of Christ or is it the image of this world? I let you be the judge. If you'd like to follow more on that, please talk to me after the service. But you see how Paul says one of the reasons why we must have a different view, a more sober view of ourselves, to think soberly of ourselves, is because we are actually no longer autonomous, individualistic selves. Oh, friends, I wonder if you have considered how the American society and its view of the autonomous self is actually shaping you and me in more ways than we realize. Uh, for Paul, the fact that Christians are one body in Christ and thus members of one another is the reason why we should not have a higher view of ourselves as we ought. Don't let your individualistic thinking and value of individual autonomy Be the highest way you think about yourself. If you are in Christ, you have a new identity. If you, have, if you are in Christ, you are part of the body of Christ. And the emphasis of, of thinking of the body of Christ and of our connection with other members in the body of Christ has another facet to it. Not only are we one, but we're also different in this unity. We must realize that we actually, as God brings us to be one, God makes us different in Christ and gives us different gifts. We are not all the same. We're not all identical. And Paul highlights not merely the unity of the body of Christ, but the different functions that each, members, each of the members have in the body of Christ. And look again at verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Yes, we must view ourselves as members of the body of Christ, as one body, but that does not mean we are all alike. And part of viewing ourselves as one body with other believers is to allow the space in our thinking that others have different functions, have different giftings from the Lord. It takes humility in our thinking to put aside our autonomous individualistic thinking on one side, but also to allow others to be what God has made them to be in Christ. Humility will help us fight both of these ditches. In our pride, we want others to be exactly like us. And it takes great humility to let others be different based on God, how God wired them, based on how God gifted them. Friends, we have looked at the call to sober thinking. We have looked at the reason for sober thinking. The reason for sober thinking is because we are one in Christ. We are members of one another, and yet these members have different functions. And now some applications for sober thinking. 
the applications for sober thinking show up in how we exercise the gifts God has given us. In verses 6 through 8, Paul gives us a list of seven gifts. Uh, This is not a comprehensive list of gifts. Not everyone has the gifts that are mentioned in this list. So if you're wondering, I wonder which of these gifts do I have? Well, if you don't find yourself having one of those gifts, don't think it's the end of the world for you. Don't think that God has not gifted you with gifts to serve his body. This is simply a a representative list of, of gifts. The principle behind these gifts is that God gives us gifts to be used well for the sake of others, not for ourselves. We're not to use the gifts God gives us for our self-worth, for our pride, for our self-promotion, or for our self-image. Now, how often people who are aware of certain gifts become hurt when others don't recognize them? Did you notice that? But the gifts God gives each of us are to be used for the purpose of building others up. Not for some hidden agenda of self-serving. And this is especially for those gifts that are more public in nature. Those who have such gifts that are more public in nature particularly need to be exhorted of not using these gifts for fueling self-image. So let me make a few comments about these gifts as we see them introduced in verse 6. Paul says in verse 6, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Did you notice how Paul says that we are to use our gifts according to the grace given to us? In other words, the gifts God gives us are not according to our worth, but according to His grace. They're not meant to be means for self-image, but they're means to be used for the building up of the image of Christ in others. And they're given based on God's grace. You and I don't deserve to be given any grace, any gifts from the Lord. And yet the Lord gives it to to us. This means that if you don't have some gifts that others have and you don't, don't think that there's something wrong with you. Or that others have something more worthy to have that gift. They didn't get that gift because they deserved it. And nor are you having gifts because you deserve them. None of us deserve God's gifts. We receive them by grace. Recognize that the gifts God gives you are according to what he chooses to give. And Paul, even when he makes the appeal here in this text, when he appeals to the church in Rome to teach them not to think higher than they ought to think of themselves, did you notice a phrase he used? By the grace given to me. Paul could have said, I'm an apostle. I have the authority to to charge you. I have the authority to ask of you. But Paul doesn't go there. He says, by the grace given to me. I appeal to you because I received grace. You see how Paul does this himself? So Paul is asking us to see our gifts as grounded in God's grace. And then he, he lists some gifts. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, clearly, this gift of prophecy was present in the apostolic age. Uh, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets in a unique way. 
And scholars debate to what extent the gift of prophecy and the office of prophecy continues today. What we can say for certain is that even those who were called to exercise this gift of prophecy in the first century were called to do so according to the measure of faith that they have received from the Lord. It was not a gift that they could use based on their whims as they wished. It was in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given them. If service, Paul says, then let them serve in serving. This is a gift of serving others in their needs. It's probably one of the most general of the gifts. Now, all Christians are called to serve one another. But some people are, are gifted, have an ability to show serving others in such sweet and amazing ways. And by the way, the word for serving here is the word for deacons. I don't think it's talking here about the office of deacons, but simply about this gift, being really good at serving others. If God has given you this gift, focus on serving. The one who teaches should focus on teaching. If God has given some the gift of teaching, let them use it for that purpose. Now, if, if a person thinks they have the gift of teaching, but others don't see it, that's a little bit of self-delusional or just hoping you have a gift that actually God has not given you. If others are, not a gift, are, are, are affirming that gift, keep doing the things that God has given you that others are able to see and affirm. Because when God gives us gifts, others will affirm them one way or another. The one who exhorts, let him use it in his exhortation. Now, what's the difference between the gift of teaching and exhorting? Teaching is more about explaining, while exhorting is, is the part that encourages, us, uh, encourages others to apply what they have heard and put it to use in their lives. To exhort is to make an appeal to others to, to live in a particular way. So, Exhorting is the urging that helps others apply God's word in particular situations. This can happen in one-on-one -on -one conversations. It can happen in small groups. This can happen in preaching God's word publicly. God gives some the gift of exhortation. And yet all of us are called to exhort one another. To stir one another up to love and good works. The one who contributes uh, to do so in generosity. Now, all Christians are called to give generously to the Lord and to the needs of others. But some have a unique ability and love for giving to others. Such giving should be done with generosity. Uh, the word for generosity could also be translated as simplicity. The point is, don't use your giving as a means of gaining influence or access to others or power over others. Those who have a gift of giving should do so selflessly without expecting any benefits in return. The one who leads should lead with zeal. In the body of Christ, God calls some to be entrusted with roles of leadership. And those who are given that calling and are gifted with that gift should do so with earnestness, with zeal. Lack of initiative and leadership may be a sign of, of laziness. To be placed in a position of leadership requires the ability to get things moving. 
And the person who's called to lead should do so with earnestness. The one who does acts of mercy is called to do so with cheerfulness. Again, all Christians are called to show mercy towards others. All of us. And yet some are gifted in a particular unique way to exemplify that mercy. To show that compassion in a, in a very sweet and helpful way. And those who have it are called to exert it with cheerfulness. Now, this list of gifts shows us not only the priority of focusing on the gifts that we have received from the Lord, but how we should exercise them. All of them, the the underlying part is do it with a willing heart based on how God has gifted you. Don't compare yourself with others. Don't compare your gift with others and tell yourself, I wish I had the other person's gift. It's particularly very tempting to desire and be envious of those gifts that are more public in nature, who therefore seem to attract more public attention. Like, wow, I wish I had that gift. Friends, whatever gift the Lord has given you, use it. You don't deserve that gift. And the person who has a different gift than than the one you have and that you crave He also doesn't deserve that gift. But the aim is, it is possible for us to have a higher view of ourselves when it comes to comparing our gifts with each other. When you desire to have a gift that the Lord has not given you, and when you crave for the gift that others have, it is possible that that craving is actually a manifestation of an inebriated preaching, uh, thinking of yourself. That you actually have a higher view of yourself than you ought. And the plea the apostle makes is very simple. Think soberly of yourself. In light of the grace of God, in light of the fact that God has given us salvation in an unmerited way, Our faith in our Savior should actually be a reason that helps us restrain our self-image. And don't think that a restrained self-image means self-pity or self-loathing or to think lower of yourself than you ought. Thinking lower of yourself than you ought is also a sign of pride, hurt pride. Don't think higher of yourself than you ought. Have a sober thinking of yourself. How? By considering that God has brought us to himself by his grace. He has united us to Christ and he's making us one body with all those who are united to Christ. And it's such an appropriate picture, especially on a Sunday when we will celebrate baptism, to think that like Tiffany and Gina this morning after the sermon is over, When they are in the water of baptism, they are symbolizing their union with Christ and their union with a people whom Christ has saved. Let that help you and help all of us to think soberly of ourselves in light of the grace of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess that each of us 
continue to fight against the instinct to think of ourselves in inordinate ways, in ways that the society shapes us and forms us to think, in ways that our own self-centered desires and self-worship wants us to think of ourselves. Father, we confess that sometimes even our faith is a reason why we think higher of ourselves in tension with others. Father, forgive us. Grant us the eyes to see that your grace enables us, calls us to think soberly of ourselves. Help us to do so in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.